Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Today, we are joined by M.R. Regaswamy, founder of Sandhill.com, the Enterprise Software and SaaS Enterprise Conferences, the Corporate Ecoform, and Indiospora. Today with MR, we'll be covering three main areas, the evolution from enterprise software to the SaaS CEO conference, the corporate ecroform, what's the connection to the software and cloud industry, and third, the Indiospora form, moving from connections to political activation. MR, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Major Up podcast. Hey, Ray, thank you for having me on your show here. And again, I have to tell you, I have had a front row seat in this incredible journey in Silicon Valley. I came here in 1982, okay? So it's what, 39 years now? So I've seen ups and downs pretty much across the board, all the busts and booms, the bubbles and bursts. So I've had a privilege and good fortune of having a great driver's seat here. And my journey kind of mirrors the journey of Silicon Valley. You know, people coming in, with some kind of idea to change the world, trying the hand of different things, failing, succeeding, trying again, all the way to today. So my journey, again, like I said, mirrors enterprise software to client server architectures, to the ASP model, to cloud, to SaaS, and now with all the new buzzwords and things that are upon us today. So I've really witnessed all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of things, when they change, a lot of things are still the same. So excited to be here. And this journey is taking me a long way to kind of creating wealth for people, to giving wealth away, to doing new things, to exploring new ideas. And so really, it's been a tremendous journey for me in the past 39 years here in the Bay Area. Well, I think we as an industry are so lucky and fortunate to have you there at the forefront of these trends. And one of the things that investors and entrepreneurs alike are good at is pattern recognition. And you've been at the forefront of several major industry trends, starting at Oracle and enterprise software to creating the enterprise conference. And then you saw the SaaS trend and created the SaaS enterprise conference to seeing the importance of sustainability in the echo form. And now the importance of giving back through political activation with the Indian American community. Are there any common threads or patterns that have commonality across all of those different initiatives that you've led, MR? Yeah, I would say that all these started accidentally. I can't look back and say, man, I had a great idea. I imagined all this stuff. And also, I started accidentally giving back. So when I left the technology industry as an executive and started the enterprise conference, the main business model of the event was to give back. So that was something I stumbled upon. It wasn't something I created initially. But When I turned the switch and said, all the profits from the enterprise retreat 
which we used to have at Pebble Beach and play the Pebble Course, and more recently now at the Ritz-Carlton and Half Moon Bay. The whole focus was the industry leaders to get together, industry leaders to discuss insider issues and not grandstand each other, but to talk about problems, stock options, accounting, the turnover in our industry, going public, getting bought. These were the issues we tackled. But at the same time, we gave away all the profits off this conference to nonprofits. And that was my introduction into giving and to becoming a philanthropist. So I think it stood me in good stead as I moved from the enterprise and the technology industry to the eco forum to now the Indian American community. That's been kind of an underpinning of all these networks that I've started. So that is the common pattern you'll see in my last 20 plus years of my journey now. Well, it's very interesting. So having this desire to do good and give back has actually accelerated your reputation and presence across the industry. And I think for people today who are trying to build their own B2B networks and following, it's an important lesson. Start out with the right goal and a successful follow. Absolutely. Absolutely, Ray. When we started the Enterprise Conference, when we brought these nonprofits in, it just changed the tone of people, changed the thinking of the 100 CEOs that we had there to one of responsibility, saying we are creating wealth and creating companies, but we also got to service the ecosystem of our industry, the schools in our neighborhood, the nonprofits that are using technology. I mean, all this came into focus as a CEO or a venture capitalist really understanding the dynamics of our community, of what we had to do to really develop a healthy ecosystem. And that's kind of what the change I think we brought about by having that. And over the 10 years, we initially ran this event at Pebble Beach, we gave away over a million and a half dollars. But it was not that money that was important, Ray. It was the CEOs becoming mentors joining boards of nonprofits, giving their own money and their company money to these nonprofits. So it was really the leverage effect, the network effect we all talk about in our own businesses that happened in the enterprise conference itself. So we were a role model in kind of teaching people and getting people to understand what the leverage effect was. Well, it's interesting. You talked about mentoring. And I still remember at the early enterprise software conferences, you had great luminaries like Hasso Plattner, the head of SAP and Tom Siebel. And now some of those are still in the industry like Tom Siebel at C3AI, but you see a lot of CEOs in the SaaS industry now that came out from those mentorships. So how have you seen the SaaS industry evolve over the last 10 to 20 years? And by having access to all these CEOs, What do you think the opportunity and challenges are for the next 20 years, MR? Yeah, and I can start with by restarting the enterprise retreat, you know, two years ago, because I remember Anil Bushri and I having breakfast a couple of years ago when he said, you know what, we have to give back. We have to give back to the current set of SaaS CEOs. He said, we were the guys who kind of started all this movement 10, 20 years ago, but how do we kind of come up with the next generation of CEOs? And he was the guy who actually pushed me to restart the event two years ago at Half Moon Bay. And so I owed to him and he said, I'll come in first year as one of the keynotes. I'm like, done, you know, and that's what got restarted. And so what we're trying to do now, Ray, is through the enterprise retreat, 
start cohorts within the enterprise group so that we have startup CEOs, we have CEOs who are trying to grow their companies, and then CEOs are trying to scale their companies. And then this year, we started a new group called the Aspiring CEOs. And these are women, these are minorities who haven't had the opportunity many of us have had. And so we've created four cohorts to kind of help each other out for the cohorts to each have mentors, all the way to the people who have made it, you know, the people like the Anil Bushris or the Keith Crocs or the Charles Phillips and many others who've kind of made it to come back and act as mentors to these different groups. And that's the kind of setup we have to get the next crop of CEOs into our industry, Ray. You know, MR, I love the evolution because the enterprise conference and now enterprise retreat was always positioned as a fairly exclusive, the top 100 CEOs of SaaS companies. And the fact that you're expanding that and creating these new cohorts, that's an amazing way to give back. What's the excitement been with those aspiring CEOs that traditionally didn't have access to these basically sages think- of the industry? Yeah, it's been extremely positive. I mean, keep in mind, we have hardly any women CEOs in our industry, and that's a shame. Same thing with Blacks and the Latin community and so forth. So I think they're very excited. And also the people who are mentoring them and the others, it's like, let's be inclusive, let's involve people. So very, very positive results, Ray, so far. And we're just getting started, by the way. This is the first year of introducing this new cohort So really looking forward to growing that and moving them up the chain. You know, we want them to go from aspiring to startup, to growth, to scale, and hopefully IPOs and exits too. Well, thank you for giving this opportunity to people who traditionally haven't had access to this level of mentorship. So good on you. Let's pivot a little bit. And one of the things I've always been amazed from knowing you for so many years now is how networked you are, but you've sustained and built that network over 39 years. And I see so many people today trying to build their following on LinkedIn and they count the number of connections and followers or they're trying to create these B2B communities and they quickly move to trying to monetize those communities. Do you have any advice or insights to what's made you so successful in building your network and maintaining it over 39 years? Great question, Ray. And again, here I want to kind of make the difference between networking and building a network. A lot of people tend to confuse these two things. Networking is when you go to an event or a show or whatever, and you're trying to meet people. That is different because you're going there with a purpose. You want to sell your product. You want to get a job. You want to raise money. You know, And that is really more on the networking side where you have an agenda. I think of building your own network as not having an agenda. And the agenda really is to add value by creating a network that feeds on itself. So you have to come in with no agenda in mind. The agenda has to be, we have to help each other. And that really has to be what you have to start with. So when you build a network, first thing to keep in mind, no quid pro quo. It's not like you're doing something, you expect anything back. Second, you're adding value to this group of people you're networking with. So that it's not merely saying how great you are, you're looking for a job, you're raising money. It's more to to put out information, to connect people without expecting anything back. And that is what creates a very successful, sustainable network, is to do things for the network, to have a strict code of conduct for the network. you got to have a code of conduct that says no grandstanding, 
no selling, no being obnoxious or aggressive, no quid pro quo. And that's what helps you build a robust network that will serve you well as opposed to networking where you have an agenda in mind. And that's the difference I hope a lot of people will take away from this conversation is to think of these two things separately and to think of what are the values when you create your own network. Well, Amar, that seems, it's great advice, but it seems a little maybe lofty goal because so many people today, especially early in their career, they're networking to get ahead. So you're even saying that person with one, two, three years of experience, think about what value you can give back before what value you can receive. Yeah. And I think, Ray, anybody can give things back. Let's say you meet a CEO of a company. He or she may be much more experienced and so on and so forth. But if you ask the right questions, you engage them, you may find out that they may want to be connected with someone else in your network, or you may give them a new idea to ponder on. And so I wouldn't say that just because you're getting started means that you can't add value to anything. So just think of all the connections you could have that you could bring to the table as well. And when there's no quid pro quo, you're thinking of this connection with the CEO as how can I add value to them as much as how can they add value to me? And I think they'll sense by the questions you ask them, by how interested you are in what they're doing, they'll sense that you're a different kind of person than a traditional person who comes and hands a business card or wants to immediately connect with you on LinkedIn and so forth. So I think you've got to change your mindset a bit to always have that helpful feeling when you're talking to people, when you're meeting people, as opposed to what's in it for you. Just think of what's in it for them when they meet you. And I think that advice, not only to the executives and people who are trying to advance their career who are listeners, but even for those people we have who are in sales, by reaching out to your target buyer and providing them value and giving them something that you think would help them is probably going to return quota performance much higher than trying to sell them your product and talking about how your feature function is better than a competitor's. Exactly. And some people might call it relationship selling or marketing. I would take it, like I said, one step beyond. They may never buy from you, but you know what? If you treat them well and offer the right values, you may get a deal in your next company or they may be helpful in something else in your personal life. You know, so you got to look beyond the deal, you know, look beyond what you're trying to accomplish today to build yourself as a community organizer, builder that will serve you well in the long term. Yeah, playing the long game. I've told so many people that were in my sales organizations, the best thing you can do is walk away from a deal where you don't think you're the best solution or you're not in the best interest of that client because that client is going to remember you. And when they do have the need for something that you are promoting, they'll come back to you again and again and again. So MR, let's do something that all great entrepreneurs do, and that's pivot. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was your Echo Forum initiative. And I know that cloud vendors like the Amazons and the Googles and Facebooks, they're some of the largest consumers of electricity, which is primarily generated by fossil fuels. In your Echo Forum, do you find that technology and cloud vendors are as innovative and progressive on sustainability as some of our more traditional industries like petrochemical or manufacturing? 
Absolutely. The Corporate Eco Forum that I started almost 14 years ago looks like yesterday, but some of the leading members, you know, it's an invitation-only group of about 70 of the world's largest companies. So it includes all the technology vendors you mentioned, like an Amazon, Apple, you know, Google, Microsoft, and so forth. They tend to actually be the leaders in this whole climate mitigation and the climate change things that are upon us. And in fact, most of them, if not all of them, have committed to net zero emissions of their data centers. They're the most aggressive purchasers of renewable energy, whether it's solar or wind. They're the most aggressive companies trying out new innovation in this space. And I couldn't be happier with what the industry is doing because they are, in fact, leading the charge with data centers with getting their companies to be net zero with greenhouse gas and other emissions by 2030 and 2040. You know, the whole sustainable development goals are upon us and everybody's supposed to make their commitments and get them accomplished in the next decade. So I think there's a sense of urgency. These are the companies that are leaders and they are actually, I think in this case, showing the entire Fortune 500, you know, what it takes in some cases to be more aggressive, to innovate more, to invest more in renewable energy. So they're doing extremely well in this space. And I think people are starting to notice. So Amar, let me ask you, do they see short-term, when I say short-term, 12 to 36 months, economic benefit by becoming more alternative energy driven? Or is it more of the ethos of the organization and wanting to do the right thing for society? What's driving them more? Yeah, I think everybody still has to build a business case. Now, you may make an exception and say, the hurdle rate is a little lower for me, you know? So some of these companies may have a lower hurdle rate on the return on investment that makes it a little bit easier. But at the end of the day, it's a business. You know, you got to really show that justification. And they've been the early proponents of this and, in fact, have helped by their early commitments to lower the price of renewable energy for the overall market, right? Because if you build more solar farms and more wind farms, the cost of the next incremental unit being produced keeps coming down. And so I think their early commitments actually paved the way for other companies to come in and really make it more economical for the whole industry. Very interesting. Well, we're going to go to the last topic I wanted to discuss with you today, and that is your current kind of active involvement with Indiospora. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the founding of Indiospora and what the goals are? Absolutely, Ray. And before I get started, a couple of things. If people want to find out, I know, might be curious about the enterprise retreat or that whole area. And the website for that is very simple. It's enterprise.sandhill.com where you can get information on what the enterprise network is all about. And the Corporate Eco Forum website is very simple. It's just ecoforum, ecoforum.com. And now for my third network that I've started, and everything is driven by what that network or community needs. The Aspera Network I formed about eight years ago, and that's because the Indian community was becoming larger in the U.S. You know, we're now 4 million Indian Americans 
And we're doing very well. Whether you look at us being 1% of the population of the US, we happen to be 7% of the doctors, we happen to be 10% of the IT workforce and so forth. So I think in many, many different areas, we're probably own 80% of the motels in the country, right? You look anywhere, you're going to find the Indians being involved. And so starting this community was a way to kind of really do two things. One, to create more visibility for the community in the United States, but also make this community be more visible in terms of us giving back to society. And this can take many different forms, right? So we wanted the community to get more politically engaged because, you know, we were 1% of the country. We didn't have any representation in the U.S. Congress. So lo and behold, you know, eight years later now, we are now 1% of the U.S. Congress. You know, we have congressmen like Ro Khanna and many others represent not only Silicon Valley, but our community in general. We also looked at community building when Black Lives Matter happened. You know, we owed it to other people of color to show support and stand up against racism. So in diaspora has taken steps to see if our community can invest in Black-owned startups. Can we be mentors to Black students and colleges? And so these are all things that we are privileged because even though we are people of color, we are privileged people of color. And so we owe it to other people of color to help them as well. And then finally, on the philanthropy side, our community is the highest earning demographic in the country. The average American family makes 50,000. The average Indian American family makes 120,000. So it's incumbent on us to give more back to our communities where we live, maybe even give back to India where we came from. So bringing the ethos of giving. And in India, the service or seva, as we call it in India, is a big part of Indians growing up. So we want to make that better known in the greater community, do more, give back more. And so we actually do an online campaign called Chalo Give, which means let's give where it's an online campaign, whether you want to give $10 or $10,000, make it easy for the 4 million Indian Americans to show their support by giving to causes. And in fact, during COVID, we were able to raise over a million dollars in a very short time frame for food banks in the US and also to give money to the migrant workers who had a big problem in India. So again, these are all the different things you can do as a community to give back, to show support, to be strong, to help everyone here. And that's kind of what the ethos of Indiaspora is. And again, its website is indiaspora.org. So indiaspora.org. You threw out a lot of metrics. And since this is the metrics that measure up podcast, I'm going to dig into a couple of those. One was the average income, you know, $50,000 for the average American family, $120,000 for the Indian American family. And one of the things that I've noticed in the community is the priority of education and education typically leads to financial outcomes. Is there anything that you're doing to help kind of promote the educational access and opportunity for different communities of color? Yeah, I think the start of that is to first inspire them. I think they need to understand what it means to have a master's or a PhD and what benefits it brings to them and their family. And so we start with that. The next step is to mentor some of the kids who are in these smaller colleges, community colleges, black colleges, and so forth. So I think we're starting with that kind of approach. But a lot of what it takes also is for this community, when we talk to them, they want to see role models in their own community. 
you know, it's good if they see an Indian, but if they see a black or a Latin person, they would be more inclined to go to college and more interested in doing that. So some of this needs to come from within and some we can help, but certainly that's an area we're exploring at greater length. And also the other thing we can do as a community is, you know, one out of three founders in Silicon Valley is an Indian American. So we can also do other things to actually make our companies more diverse and inclusive. And so that's something that's incumbent on us in any of the startups that Indian Americans have, that we hire more Blacks and more people of color. It's also incumbent on us. We have a lot of venture capitalists or Indian American for them to take a look at more minority-owned companies and startups and to mentor them, to invest in them. So all these take time, but we are just getting started. Well, I think it's just an amazing cause. And I traditionally have thought about it as political activism for the Indian American community and some great results with Kamala Harris, Nikki Haley, Rokan, as you mentioned, but it goes far beyond that. And it's really helping all communities of color, MR. That's, that's an incredible vision that you have. Thank you, Ray. A lot more work to be done. Again, the three networks that I've helped set up, you know, we've not reached any of the objectives by any means, right? When we talked about cloud in 2005, we said, oh, we're just getting started. And, you know, cloud and SaaS are maybe 10, 20% penetrated the market. So there's a long way to go, even in what happens in that space, in the sustainability, in the eco space, you know, we need to meet these sustainable development goals by 2030, if we have to mitigate climate change and lower the temperature, lower the greenhouse gases and the pollution that we have. And within the Indian community, you know, we're just getting started with how much money we've made to how much money we're giving back. And so I think a lot of work to be done and we're just getting started. So, you know, I'm excited that we've done a little bit so far, but we have a long ways to go. MR, sorry, I said we were going to wrap up, but you just brought up something, and that is that where we are from a maturation perspective of the cloud industry, and you said maybe we're 20, 30% of the way there. And I had Byron Dieter from Bessemer Ventures, who's kind of the father of SaaS and cloud metrics, and he's got a very interesting report that showed on a global basis, only about 38% of software that's being used is actually cloud-based software. It's still on-prem. And he thinks over the next 10 years, that will evolve to 90% of software delivery will be cloud-based. Is that kind of in sync with what your vision is for the future of the industry? Yeah. One thing here I want to mention is Bill Gates once said, and this is still true, and that is we highly overestimate technologies when they come out and we highly underestimate their impact decades later. It's happened with the cell phone. It's happened with cloud. It's going to happen with many of these technologies, right? When it first came out, we expected to do wonders within three to five years. But then we underestimate what happens and what impact these technologies have 10 to 20 years out. That's exactly what's happening with cloud when you look at it. So I couldn't agree with Byron more in this regard. And I think for our listeners, whether you're currently the CEO of your own cloud company or you're a marketing professional or a customer success professional and you aspire to found and be the CEO of your own organization, I think MR shared some great advice today. Number one, the cloud industry is still in the early innings using a baseball metaphor. So take the risk and go out there and build your own company. Number two, realize that by giving back, you can actually have more success than if you're looking at what the industry can give to you. 
And when you're thinking about that, every interaction that you have someone when you're out there, whether it's talking to a potential customer, a partner, or an employee, think about the fact that you're building a trusted network that you're adding value to versus trying to network to extract value from those potential relationships. MR, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. And most importantly, thank you for everything you've done for the industry. Thank you so much, Ray. Happy to be here and happy new year to all your listeners as well. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.